Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, Cobalt Press has released the first Black Flag reference document. We're going to take a look at that, and we're going to have a comparison of different 5th edition compatible cult fanatics. It's going to be a cult bake-off today on the talk show. I'm going to do a talk about making unique lazy magic items. How? What's an easy way to make a incredible wealth of different kinds of interesting magic items that your players are sure to love and it's really easy to do. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about adventure types. I talked about this a little bit before. I've gotten an article that I started working on. What are the different types of adventures as I see them? How do we prep for them and how do we run them at the table? And we're going to cover more questions from the October 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Slifeless here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the de- a dedicated Discord server, a monthly Q&A, the City of Arches sourcebook, tools to help you run your games, a bunch of adventures, a Dwarven Forge virtual tabletop background generator, a talk show database, all different kinds of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. It's a really, really good deal. You can check it out. You can find all of that in the show notes. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So Cobalt Press had a Kickstarter earlier this year for Tales of the Valiant. Tales of the Valiant is their core fifth edition rules. It comes in two books, a player's guide and a monster vault. Those are the first two books that they're putting out for Tales of the Valiant. And their intent was to make sure that there is another version of fifth edition out there besides the one that's being put out by Wizards of the Coast. It kind of got started during the whole OGL fiasco. And one of the things that Cobalt Press said they were going to do, they, they put, put it all underneath this term called Black Flag, which was their attempt to say we're not going to lose control of fifth edition we are going to continue to support fifth edition whatever wizards of the coast decides then of course wizards of the coast put out the srd under the 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 fifth edition srd under a creative commons license which alleviated a little bit of the need but the kickstarter still did very well and cobalt press is following through with what they said which is creating a black flag reference document so this is the first one i believe that they are going to continue to update this as tales of the valiant is updated it is not there and you know they say as we complete more rules for the for the final rules the black flag records document will be updated and re-released to stay current so they're going to continue to update the black flag reference document but right now it contains a lot of the stuff that we've seen in play tests and stuff like that it is a big pdf 138 page pdf covers some core classes fighter cleric fighter rogue and wizard talks about lineages and heritages heritage heritages I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. The luck system, how to play the game, equipment and magic items with just a handful of these, spellcasting with a handful of spells, and monsters with a handful of monsters. So it's an abbreviated version of what you would find in a 5th edition book, but it is not a it is not a fully complete one, and the expectation is they're going to put out a more fully complete reference document along with their material. Now, the interesting thing, one of the things that immediately caught my eye with this is this is released under the new Orc license. The Orc license is the license that was funded by Paizo, uh, developed by Azora Law. It was uh, put out in the public and took a lot of public comments and public feedback. A bunch of different lawyers looked at it uh, and uh, they put out this new license and Orc is the first major 5th edition product I have seen that uses the Orc license. Um, A lot of other ones are either using Creative Commons licenses or they're still sticking, including Cobalt Press, still sticking with the OGL. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of license stuff because every time I talk about licenses, I get people emailing me saying, oh, my God, with the license talk. But I think it is important because the whole the, the issue that's going on with 
gaming licenses for tabletop role-playing games affects the material that GMs get, that different kinds of products that we're going to see. Now, the big deal is the minute that the 5.1 SRD from Wizards of the Coast went out under a Creative Commons, that was the most important one by far. And the reason why is that that single document under a Creative Commons license means that you are safe in using all kinds of terms that were that some argued were questionable like can you use the six ability scores in something can you talk about hit points the same way can you have spells the way that the spells are laid out can you talk about monsters all of that stuff was like well maybe you can and maybe you can't maybe wizards will come after you maybe they won't it wasn't clear now that it, that book is out none that, that that reference document is out under creative commons license it means you can iterate off of all of that which means even if you look at what's inside black flag and say wow those are cool ideas black flag got them from that book which means that you always have this like root level document that you can reference regardless of what anybody else is doing in this space it means that if you're developing fifth edition level stuff you can almost always point back to that core document which is under creative commons license but what's interesting about black flag using orc is if you want to use any of the material from black flag you also have to use the orc license you can't for example write a document of your own that includes orc stuff and then release that under a creative commons license or any other license because orc always requires that you use the orc license now the orc license allows you to use creative commons material as they're doing here so they're using creative commons material from the core srd but then releasing their material under orc so what does that mean not it's not super clear and the big thing to me the big question that came up to me is i don't think you can mix orc and ogl material together which means if you want to include material that is inside black flag and material that's inside deep magic or the tome of beasts or the tome of heroes which are put out by Cobalt press those books are under the ogl but tales of the valiant is under and i don't know that those licenses work which means i don't think you can include a product that includes material both from tales of the valiant and from other Cobalt press material in one document i don't think you can so that licensing thing is weird now if tales of the valiant or if black flag was released under creative commons then you could because you, you could you could license your your, your OGL material and then include the license for creative commons a big headache it's a great big headache but that's not really you know that's that's one thing to consider the other thing is that tales of the valiant cobalt press can always release this under a creative commons license and they can also use the tales of the valiant material they want in any product that they have this is kind of this weird you know it's this kind of weird thing i'm not crazy about orc and the reason i'm not crazy about the orc license is the minute you use it the minute you use material that's licensed by orc you have to use orc all the way down the line and it means that upstream producers who own the original material can do whatever they want with their material but you have to release your material under orc it's a weird relationship where creative commons licenses a creative commons attribution license doesn't have that it's my preferred license that's the license that i use for lazy gm reference material i release it under a cc by license so that people can do what they want to it so it's that question of you know, you always, once you start using Orc, you always have to use Orc. And that limits you on other licenses that you can or can't use. You cannot use Creative Commons licenses if you start using Orc. Oh, license. Sorry. I'm sorry for all those. Please don't email me. Sorry about talking about licenses. But let's look at some of the material here. One of the things that was interesting is I had a session on Friday night, Friday night, and I had some cult fanatics. And I was like, oh, well, I've got different kinds of cult fanatics I can use. I, of course, like to use material from lots of different places. And I thought it would be fun 
to look at the black flag cult fanatic right here. Let's see if I can get it on one page. That looks that looks good. And we can look at the 2014 cult fanatic. And we can look at the level up advanced 5e cult fanatic. I don't know why this scrolling is so weird for level up advanced 5e. I'm going to look it up in the book. I don't want to look it up. There. So starting with the 2014 cult fanatics are one of my favorite. Mon- I love cults. I love cultists. They're just great monsters for lots of different reasons. And I have used the cult fanatic in, I don't know, dozens, maybe, I don't know about hundreds, but lots and lots of times I've used the cult fanatic. It's one of my favorite stat blocks. And I like it because it's, you know, it's that hits that perfect challenge rating. CR2 is a really good boss monster even for it's really really dangerous against first it's pretty strong as a boss monster with maybe a couple of cultists that are around with it for level two characters it's a good like one-on-one battle against fourth or fifth level characters and then you can use lots of cult fanatics when you have higher level characters so it's one of those stat blocks that scales really well with the level of characters and how many cult fanatics you there are also it's also a pretty strong stat block now the original 2014 stat block follows this model where the bulk of the challenge rating of the cult fanatic is inside the spells that it has particularly the strong one is inflict wounds that inflict wounds at at cr2 is really powerful because it's a 3d 10 it does 3d 10 damage and it can scale it up to 4d 10 damage which is 22 points of damage at cr2 so that's pretty strong you know one that goes and hits you and does and it could do it twice it could do it three times if it could pull it off so a strong cult fanatic strategy is round one is a spirit weapon and a sacred flame the spirit weapon attack sacred flame does something round two you go up and start hitting with inflict wounds while your spirit weapon is bashing people really strong thing but the 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 design is kind of hard because you kind of have to know how to do that that like a new DM might not recognize, oh, that's a really strong strategy, right? You have to kind of know how to do that. And and also you have to go look up what does Inflict Wounds do? What does Shield of Faith do? What does Spirit Weapon do? You need to know what those spells do. I know I've used those spells enough that I tend to know what they do. And and eventually you get good enough, you, you get experienced enough that you know how to do it. But it, it helps. So that was one. Then or then. Level Up Advanced 5e, when they put out the Monstrous Menagerie, took a new approach for the Cult Fanatic, which is spell out their spells inside the stat block so you don't need to look them up. So we still have a challenge rating 2 monster, 39 hit points, AC 12, has advantage on saving throws against being charmed or frightened because they're spellcasters. A uh, little bit of a stronger spell attack in DC than the, the vanilla Cult Fanatic, which is 11 and 3, it's 12 and 4, so it's a little bit more powerful. Same kind of spells inflict wounds is there hold person is there it does not have spirit weapon and i guess the reason why is that spirit weapon really kicked up the challenge of a cult fanatic that when if you're doing level two inflict wounds is at 20 inflict woundsing inflict wounds is uh at level two which are doing 22 points of damage and you're inflicting like five six seven points of damage with your spirit weapon you're way above the cr curve so this one actually is pretty on par that you have inflict wounds plus four to hit one creature 16 necrotic damage so you can see it's doing like eight damage per cr when it's using inflict wounds as a spell but also has hold person has sacred flame doesn't have any bonus actions here so it's not bad. It's a good, strong cult fanatic. It really takes the core one, balances out a little, uh, uh, and then spells out the spells so you know what they're, they're going to do. But not, not quite as strong as the original 
2014 cult fanatic, but better off in spelling it out. And then we take a look at a new advancement, which is following the same kind of design that Wizards of the Coast has started to do, which is removing spells as a way that a character that a monster does its you know a, a, applies its challenge rating and instead focusing on abilities that that monster has and now we look at the black flag this is from kobold press in the tales of the valiant black flag book we can look at their cult fanatic the first thing you'll notice is that the stat block is significantly smaller cr2 way higher on hit points look at that jump in hit points 60 hit points that's 30 hit points per cr that's probably a that's a bit high that feels high to me because uh, like this one, it's got it's got 39 hit points for level up advanced 5e and 33 for core. It's almost twice as many hit points. That feels a little bit high. And in fact, when I ran it, I lowered their hit points, which you can always do, right? You can with all these monsters, you can always modify them. Makes two sacrificial dagger or dark bolt attacks. So instead of doing like inflict wounds, it's like stabbing you with a sacrificial dagger or it's blasting you with dark bolts, which aren't technically, you know, and it says spell attack, which means you could theoretically counter it. But how does countering work when it's a spell attack that doesn't have a spell level? Anyway, so does four slashing damage plus seven fire or necrotic damage, the fanatic's choice. If the target is paralyzed, prone, stunned, or unconscious, takes an extra two. The extra two doesn't really matter too much, but that's 11 points of damage per hit, two attacks. That's 22 damage per CR. That's 11 damage per CR. The Sly Flourish, Forge of Fozy sort of benchmark is about seven per CR is where I, if a monster is doing seven damage per CR, that to me feels like par. That feels like it's even Steven. If you're doing significantly more than that, you're hitting really hard. This one's hitting really hard, especially at lower CRs where you have a tendency of facing lower level characters and those characters have less ways to deal with it. I don't mind when you start to get to the 10 damage per challenge rating at higher CRs because they kind of need it. And even going really high, 15 damage per CR for really high CR monsters is at hand. This high for this low is dangerous. Uh, Unholy Bolt does 10 necrotic damage at range. 60 foot range, 10. That's 20 damage per CR. Still really high. Now, if you note, this damage is actually on par with the amount of damage that the 2014 version did. If you do that super tactical spirit weapon on one side, inflict woundsing on the other you know you have sort of that and this one sort of has a bonus action to uh, unholy brand which i think is pretty cool i used it it was very flavorful the idea that the fanatic every so often can like draw a glyph and attach it to somebody 30 feet away and then they have advantage on their attack until the let's see while the creature is branded fiends and cultists have advantage on attack rolls which means they do this first and then they have advantage on those rolls and if they crit they're really hammering the damage out oh my god you crit on these things and i did i crit a lot you're doing like 30 something damage 35 damage it's crazy high damage so those are like three different ways to look at the cult fanatic right the original 2014 version of the cult fanatic the cult fanatic from level up advanced 5e and the black flag cult fanatic and which do i if i put these in a ring which do i like best i probably like the kobold press one the most but i'm gonna modify i'm gonna modify all of them the original one if you know what the spells do, that fun tactic of using creating a spirit weapon and doing uh, like a necrotic sacred flame on round one, then round two using inflict wounds at a higher spell slot while your weapon is attacking. That's really cool and dangerous. Their hit points are about right for their challenge rating. 30 some hit points for CR2. That fits. 15 per CR is kind of what I, I aim hit points at. 
the level up advanced 5e one is good, but the lack of a bonus action kind of hurts. The fact that it doesn't have a bonus action thing that it does means pretty much it's going to be using inflict wounds as often as it can. The dagger is a wasted spot because you never want to stab. You're going to, you get one stab attack for four damage. Why is it even there? Sacred flame is also really low. Why would you ever do that? And inflict wounds doesn't seem to have a limit on how often it can do. I guess it's still based on the slots. They're basically filling out the slots. So inflict wounds is four slots. But there isn't anything about beefing up inflict wounds to 4d10, which you probably don't want to do because it's a lot of damage, but 16 necrotic damage on an attack roll. But you would be doing that right away. No bonus action attack. So I actually think the level up advanced 5e cult fanatic, I'm not as crazy about because it lose, all it basically does is lose some of the capabilities that it had. It does have the advantage that everything is right there in the stat block. So you don't have to go look things up. You want to do inflict wounds. It's very straightforward to run. But like hold person, you generally don't want to do because a whole person is concentration based. I mean, it paralyzes people, which is really good. And that would be good if you have a bunch of cult fanatics that are going to do it. I would love to see a bonus action. And I would, you know, you, if you add on spirit weapon, now it suddenly has a bonus action it can do on top of its other stuff. And by the way, spirit weapon doesn't take concentration, which means you can do spirit weapon and hold person if you want it. But I really like the Cobalt Press one. It's really hits too hard. It, or it hits hard, too hard, maybe a little too hard, but you know, it'll definitely keep your CR, your level three plus characters uh, on their toes. And, but the hit points are probably too high. 60 hit points feels like too much. 45 is very reasonable. Even in the thirties, given the amount of damage it does, having it in the thirties. So it's a little bit of a glass cannon would probably be pretty good. So all of them, frankly, in my opinion, need some work, right? I don't think, I think all of these, the, the cult fanatic from 2014 needs the work and that you need to know what the tactics are that you're going to use. And you need to know what the spells do. The level up advanced 5e one, you might want to throw on a, a spirit weapon on there just to make it kind of fun. Otherwise it would work pretty straightforward and the, the rest of the stats are fine the black flag one is just going to hit so freaking hard that you you might you know it's going to it's more like a cr3 you want to be careful using these cr2s you if level ones are going to just get destroyed almost every level one it's going to it's going to absolutely destroy level one characters level two would have a really hard time with these guys level three and above they're probably okay i ran them against third level characters and they knocked people around quite a bit so I think that that's kind of an interesting way to look at this. Now, of course, I think we're going to see other new versions of this and Cobalt Press. This is still kind of in testing. So I don't know that like this is what's going to be in the Monster Vault that, you know, people can take feedback on it. And I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm curious how much feedback people are getting on Monsters. Hopefully Black Flag, hopefully Cobalt Press continues to put out new playtests of Black Flag material so people can kind of dig into these and sort of say like, yeah, that dude hits a little hard. And I'll probably offer some feedback based on the fact that I ran the, the Cult Fanatic and say it does. It's pretty good. Hit points are a little low. Our hit points are a little high. Uh, sacrificial dagger attack. I mean, if I were going to redesign it, what do I do? Would, would it be, let's see, if you did 1d4 plus 2 slashing damage plus 1d6 fire necrotic, that would be 7 damage, 14 damage. That feels right. I would probably lower the fire and necrotic damage to 1d6. And then keep and maybe do another D6 if they're paralyzed or stunned or unconscious because that that four is kind of low. And the unholy bolt, I might make a like make it a D10 instead of two D6. So a D10, the average on that would be 5.5 plus three, 8.5, so eight, and that would be 16. That would be better. So a D10 unholy bolt and a d6 for the fire necrotic damage on the sacrificial dagger would put its damage closer in line and i would lower those hit points to probably 45 you know somewhere between 35 and, and 45 hit points i think 
And then I feel like this would be right at a CR2. I think otherwise it's too strong. The other thing I might throw in that three times per day is add in spirit weapon if you want to. So they have like another bonus action thing they can do when they've used their unholy brand. But maybe you don't need to do that. Because again, you look at it spell casting and it's like those spells are things that you shouldn't normally use. Anyway, I think it's kind of fun to, to, to look at this. And the cool bit is we're going to have so many of these that you can kind of pick the one that you think works best. You pick which, which cult fanatic do I want. And you can change up. Hey, what, I ran this kind of cult fanatic one game and I run a new one in a new kind of game. Give it a different kind of flavor. And now there's reasons why there's reasons why they do that. So that's my comparison of the cult fanatics. And of course, I'm interested to see the Black Flag reference document get updated and what kind of stuff is added to that. And of course, I really want to see Tales of the Valiant. One disclaimer that I should have made at the beginning of this is I am a freelancer for Cobalt Press on Tales of the Valiant. So I am definitely biased towards, but I'm also a freelancer for uh, Level Up Advanced 5e. I've done some, a little bit of work for them recently. So I'm getting paid by both sides. I, I get paid to do that work because I love that kind of work. So keep that in mind. I wanted to offer a tip today that I think it, it came to my, it's something I've been doing for a long time. Maybe I think a lot of DMs have been doing this longer than I've been DMing. So it's not exactly a, wow, this is totally new and unique and I never even thought of this before. But the thing that really brought it to my attention is how often it happens in the game Baldur's Gate 3. So I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3. I love it. It's a fantastic game. And of course, you can't help but look at it and say, oh, what are some of these concepts and ideas that I could bring to my 5th edition game? And uh, so I'm going to talk about how I often make magic items, interesting magic items. And there's a few design principles for building your own magic items that I think work really well. They're very easy to do. Players love them and they take very little time, very little energy, and yet are really, really unique. And a common thing that I do when you make a magic item, when I make a magic item, is I determine a few things about the magic item. Who made it? Like, what is its origin? Is it elven? Is it dwarven? Is it drow? Is it elemental? Is it built from the realms of chaos? Where did this item come from? That's a little bit of flavor. In the Lazy DM's Companion, I have a thing called the Core Adventure Generator. It's a whole bunch of different tables that you can use to generate lots of different things in your adventure to sort of fill the world out. And one of the most useful tables that I have here is this condition description and origin table where it has like smoky sunken human and you can roll uh, a 20 sided die for each of these to generate any kind of magic item so for example just for fun we will roll up we'll, we'll pretend we're making a new magic sword we want a new magic sword in our game who developed the magic sword where, where is this from it's an undead so you immediately have an undead blade a blade that was like forged from you know the, the necrotic areas of death you can see like it's got skulls on its on its cross guard it's wrapped in human skin on its hilt the blade is etched black with glyphs along the edge immediately you get some flavor but then we're gonna say what's its condition condition is seven it is necrotic well that fits so maybe this blade can switch its damage to necrotic or something like that but you can see like there's a black you know a black flame that sort of roils up its blade and then what's another descriptor that we want to use and i rolled a three and that is obsidian wow funny how the dice rolls sometimes so you have an obsidian blade that's swimming with necrotic energy and it has got like a skull cross cut so you immediately like wow that sword is crazy evil but maybe it's not so evil that you wouldn't want to swing it in your in your in your world now so that's cool immediately you can roll on the condition description and origin table to make a unique item one other thing that i often add which i think is really valuable you can't just get this from a table in a book you kind of have to make it yourself is when you look at your campaign world write down the specific gods and factions that exist in your 
your campaign. Build your own random list of gods and factions that exist in your campaign. Those could be factions from history, like who are the people that went to war 2,000 years ago? And what are those different groups? What are some of the weird gods that might have not been worshipped in a long time? Or what are some gods that are worshipped now? You can put those all into a random list. A, a list of 20 is great. If you only have 12, that can work too. But the more you have, the, the richer that table is going to be. And then you roll on that table. And what you get there is you, now you've got a list of factions for your campaign that are tied to a specific item. That turns this magic item into a vehicle of secrets and clues for that faction. And maybe they learn those secrets and clues when they get the weapon, but maybe they learn it later when other people see it, or if the item sort of unlocks in power, or if an old sage looks at it and says, oh, well, that comes from this empire. They can learn secrets and clues from this item. So right away, we've got a lot of rich lore for an item by just rolling a few, a few items on a few different tables we don't need giant books of magic items in order to develop these rich items and they're custom built for our campaign because we have that list of different factions that is really really valuable but what about the power that we want to add to these items well obviously you can go with the straightforward plus one plus two plus three depending on like what tier of weapon it is and if you're going to make a weapon in particular we're going to look at like making a sword and maybe you say like this is going to be a long sword right so we're going to create a long sword it's this undead long sword it's you know necrotic it's got the weird wavy necrotic flames on it it's you know undead origin that was built for like a death knight or something like that but what about the powers that we give it well here's the really interesting thing you can attach any spell not just from the core books but any spell from any different source book you can find, whether it's Cobalt Press's Deep Magic 1 and 2, whether it's stuff from Ghostfire Gaming, whatever source of spells you can find, you can read through those and look through and find interesting spells that you want to attach to a magic item. And you can kind of give it that cool ability. We're going to actually, for fun, let's take a look at adding a spell from Cobalt Press's recent re-release of Deep Magic. So Cobalt Press recently had a Kickstarter for Deep Magic 1 and 2. They did a re-release of Deep Magic 1. And you can take a look at different spells. And we're going to probably pick... So we have spell descriptions because we know it's this evil necrotic blade, right, that we created. So we're going to specifically look at, like, blood magic spells. Blood magic is a particular style of magic that Cobalt Press has added into their books. And we're going we're gonna to look at this in particular. So an example would be, like, Bloody Smite. In fact, they all start with like bloody. So that's, that's handy. We can kind of go through our list here and look at bloody spells. There's one blade of wrath. Again, you can kind of skim, create a sort of pure white fire in your hand. The blade is similar in size and shape to the long sword. It's got less of the duration. The blade disappears. Use your action to make a melee spell attack with the blade on a hit. The target takes 2d8 fire damage and 2d8 radiant. That's a third level spell. An aberration, fair fiend or undead creature uh, damaged by the blade must succeed in a wisdom saving throw or be frightened. The blade sheds bright light. So... This Blade of Wrath ability, which, you know, isn't from the blood ability, but you could take this mechanic and say, and let's say if, if, if this was going to be a sword that was like a, a rare sword, a plus two sword. So for your characters that are like fifth to 10th level, you could say that once per day, and this is something you often do with this, is that the, when you attach a spell to a permanent magic item, that it's able to do it one time per day and then it resets at the next dawn. So they get to do it once. And the nice thing about that is if you attach a powerful ability to it, they can really only do it in one fight. They're not going to be doing it all the time. So imagine you have like the Flame Tongue Longsword. The Flame Tongue Longsword does 2d6 fire damage 
all the time, every battle. That 2d6 is constant. But if you attach it to a spell that is only usable one time per day, like this Blade of Wrath, then they can only use it once. So you could take the Blade of Wrath ability, third level, third level spell, and instead of it creating a pure white fire, it instead it erupts the blade in black fire, and it does an extra 2d8 fire damage and 2d8 necrotic damage so that's a ton of damage right that's an extra 18 points of damage per hit that the blade will do and you could have that instead of an aberration fae fiend or undead creature damage by the blade that if it if it hits a celestial creature that it would it would you know do wisdom save wisdom saving throw and you have to set the dc to be like dc 15 but that extra damage is gonna be crazy now that weapon in a in the hands of a powerful character like a fighter with a lot of action surges that's going to do a lot of damage extra 18 damage per hit that's going to be it's going to really dish it out but i tell you your player will love that ability and that would be a really really powerful weapon so that would be an example but you can go and look through you can really think of spells as tiny little capsules of rules that you can use as single-use magic items. You can use them as a a per-day permanent magic item. You can use them in any way possible. And there are literally thousands of them out there that you can use. Now, there's arguments about, oh, well, how well-balanced are these spells versus other spells? And it doesn't matter because you're going to look at each one. And if that one works, then you can attach it. You can also look and say, that's a little overpowered. I'm going to change that. So maybe instead of saying 2d8 fire and 2d8 necrotic, you just say it's 2d8 necrotic. So the nice thing is, you can sort of change the design of these things to fit that one magic item. And it's only on that item. It doesn't break your whole game. It's not a new thing that's everywhere. It's just on that one item that that one character has one time. One important consideration when you're making a permanent magic item like this, where you attach a spell to it and and make it, is that you almost always want to make sure that it requires attunement. And the reason why is, you A, you don't want that player to be able to use, that character to be able to use that item, plus a bunch of other stuff that the attunement rules are a really fantastic design for 5th edition because they make sure that even if you are acquiring a lot of different magic items, you can only have attuned three that require attunement. So that means your character power is sort of bound by the total number of items that you can attune rather than the total amount of items that you can carry. If they didn't require attunement, then you have pretty much all of the power of all of the different items. It means you could say, oh, for this one, I'm going to switch to my other sword and attack. Oh, that one. Or I can even like attack with one, then drop it, pick up another one and attack with that one. You can do really bananas things if you don't require attunement. So whenever you're attaching like a spell or you're making this like kind of unique magic item you almost always want to include attunement as one of the requirements that it takes them an hour to attune to that and they can only have three attunement slots blood armor this is kind of a cool one when you strike a foe with a melee weapon attack you can immediately cast blood armor as a bonus action the foe you must struck must contain blood if the target doesn't bleed the spell ends with that effect blood flowing from your foe magically increases in volume and forms a suit of armor around you granting you an armor class of 18 plus dexterity for the spell's duration which is one hour this armor has no strength requirement doesn't hinder spell casting and doesn't incur disadvantage that's pretty cool right so that's another one you could have this weapon this blood armor weapon that when you slash a guy with your obsidian undead blade the blood comes out and wraps around you and forms like a suit of armor you'd look like the armor in, in bram stoker's dracula and that would be really powerful again boy your armor class loving characters would certainly love this and again it only lasts for one hour you could of course tweak the duration and say no it only lasts for one minute so maybe when they hit a guy they get the armor and it's sort of like their armor increases right away but only for that 
minute that which basically says that it's basically only going to last for one battle so again you can take a mechanic like this you can tweak it slightly attach it to an item and off you go so this has been a way that i have created magic items in my games now for years and it means when i do stuff like this i don't have to have like a whole separate tome of of magic items i can instead build magic items when i'm doing my prep very quickly and very easily my players love them especially with stuff like this because you're including a lot of spells that the players have never seen before so they don't even know that you modified it if you decided to modify it and they're seeing spells with a lot of different flavor so it's a fantastic way to use these books that have tons and tons of different spells or other abilities in them that you can then tie to magic items and create these really interesting unique magic items it's a trick that i love it's a very lazy trick it's very easy to do uh, it has a lot of both rich lore in the game by attaching it to a particular faction giving it kind of an interesting characteristics that it's got making it a vehicle for secrets and clues but then also has really good mechanical crunch that players love to see uh, attached to their characters so if you're looking for new magic items if you're looking for a way to shake up your game consider building uh, magic items that are tuned around particular factions in your game have interesting characteristics associated with them that kind of define them in the world have your, your basic abilities like a plus one plus two plus three sort of abilities very straightforward and easy to do and then attach these interesting spells to them and you're all set let's talk about adventure types this is something that I've been thinking about ever since I read a book by Robin Laws called The Adventure Crucible. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Robin Laws picked particular types of adventures and what are the main components on how those adventures work? What are some of the pitfalls that can happen in running on those adventures? What are the styles and the themes? The book is really outstanding, but when I think about the kind of games that I've been running, the styles of games that he describes sometimes overlapped with what I see, but in many cases, I have different styles that I've been looking at. I wrote an article for Sly Flourish a couple weeks ago called Dungeon Crawls versus Situations, where I sort of took the dungeon crawl style of adventure and compared it to larger situations. But really, the idea of a situation can be lots and lots of different things. The envelope that surrounds situations is actually pretty wide. So the article is actually more about dungeon crawls versus heist style situations, which I'm now calling infiltration adventures because infiltration kind of fits the style more so heists mean you're stealing something infiltration could be you're stealing something but also lots of other stuff and it got me thinking about what are the other types of adventures that are there and you know one question is why is it useful to even categorize adventures at all and i think it's useful for for two particular reasons when we know the adventure type it can tell us what kind of stuff we're going to need to prepare and how we're going to need to prepare for it and if we know the style of adventure, we know about what it's going to be like to run that, that not every type of adventure is run the same way. And if we know this type of adventure, we know the framework that we're going to use when we're running it at the table. So I've expanded upon this idea. I started working on a draft article and I wanted to talk about it here because this is a great way for me to get feedback on do these types make sense? Is my thought process in this in the right direction? Am I missing things that everyone else is doing, but I'm missing? This is a good opportunity for that. So as I'm going through this, if you say, well, I don't think you have this particular adventure type, or there's this way that these two are really the same thing, or there's this whole other one that you're not thinking about, give me that feedback. I don't, I'm not going to say I'm going to incorporate it all, but uh, I definitely want to hear more about it. So I wrote a draft article. This one is back published, so I don't know when I'm going to publish it on Sly Flourish or turn it into a newsletter. If you want to see the 
the final version of this article, the best way to get to it is sign up uh, for the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's in the show notes. It's absolutely free. You'll get this plus a new adventure, uh, a new article about role-playing games in your inbox every week. You should definitely subscribe. I don't know why you wouldn't. It's absolutely free and it's great. So I started getting my heads around what these styles of adventures were. And I, after some talk with patrons on the Sly Flourish Discord server, I kind of came to these seven different adventure types that fit what Robin Laws referred to and other people refer to as F20 games, which are like fantasy D20 style games. So you can think like fifth edition, but also other styles of fantasy role-playing games could fit this. There are some styles of fantasy role-playing games that are so wrapped around their particular way of running it that they don't really fit here. But when we think about, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and fifth edition, other fifth edition kind of games, these, these are the ones that make sense to me. And those adventure types are dungeon crawls, infiltration adventures, investigation adventures, missions, travel, defense, and intrigue. Some of these are used way more often than others. So you, some of these you may never really run into. And a couple of times they, they tend to overlap. A couple considerations. A, your list is probably different than mine. You might look at the kind of adventures you run and you say, no, I don't run these and my I think of mine differently. That's great. The only thing to consider when you're looking at these categories is how do they affect those two criteria? Do you prepare them differently than you prepare other adventures? And do you run them differently than you run other adventures? Those are really the things that I think matter when we're looking at this. This is not an academic exercise. I'm not just trying to come up with categories for the sake of coming up with categories. I'm trying to come up with them specifically to help all of us know how we prep them and how we run them. Practical stuff that we do when we're sitting down to run them. So dungeon crawls, as an example, has a particular style to it. When we're doing a dungeon crawl, we're mostly focused on a dungeon map, like a Dyson, a Dyson logo style map. So this is a very typical dungeon style map. I just, this is literally the first one that showed up on DysonLogos.com. Dyson logos, fantastic place to get maps, 1100 maps that you can download for free check it out in the show notes and we focus on the location right what are the specific places what are the specific rooms how do they connect when we're doing our prep we say to ourselves what are in each of these chambers what's going on here we do focus on a goal why are the characters going in here what are they trying to accomplish a lot of times you just don't have adventures that wander into dungeons. This is sort of an old school sort of idea of like, oh, we just wander in there to go get treasure. I don't think that really works anymore. And the reason I don't think it works is I think players are savvy to the idea of like, why would I risk my life for stuff I don't even know about? Why am I going into this dungeon if there's no, why am I risking my life to go in here? And the potential for five gold pieces is not really it. I think there needs to be something more. So you still need to have a goal for why the characters are going to adventure, but you're mostly focused on the layout of the adventure, what's in these chambers, what monsters are lurking about and stuff like that. So your prep for a dungeon crawl focuses on that the, the location, the location and the goals, the chambers, chamber descriptions, what's in there. How you run a dungeon crawl is very different because you are concerned with things like positioning. Who's in front? Who's in back? Who's checking for traps? Who's keeping an eye out for monsters? Who's got a light source? Who's carrying our rations and stuff? You care about things. The way you run a dungeon crawl feels different than how you run other styles of adventures. And for me, that, that question, the, the a framing question for a dungeon crawl is, what is your turn what is your marching order who's up front who's in the back who's got a light source all of these things matter more when you're running that than it does in something like a travel scene or an intrigue adventure or anything else you tend to like you don't you don't say like oh you're all headed to the grand duke's ball 
Who's up front and who's got a torch? Nobody cares who's up front and who has a torch when you go to the Grand Duke's Ball. But you definitely care when you're delving into a dungeon. So that's an example. What are some ways that dungeons fall apart? When you're running a dungeon crawl, what happens? And I, I wrote a few of these down. This, again, is an idea that I got from the, from, the, from the Adventure Crucible that Robin Laws wrote. The creatures receive no useful information about which direction to take. Oh, you can go left or right. And we, we hear this a lot of time. Oh, you can go left or right. Well, why would I go one direction or the other? Well, so what you do is you, you hear the noise of humanoids laughing to the left, and there's really cold air coming from the right. You've at least given some information. They go, oh, do we want to go towards the cold air where we're not hearing human voices? And I ran this on you know a couple days ago, and I said, like, you can hear people talking down there, or you hear the sounds of battle. Do we want to head right into the sounds of battle, or do we want to try to circumvent it? Now they have useful information. Too many downward beats. You go to this dungeon, and you're just getting your ass kicked. You're running into traps. You're getting burned by stuff. Monsters are constantly attacking you. You're not finding anything good. Downward beats are very common in Dungeon Crawl. You want to know that there's some upward beats, reasons for the characters to feel good about something that they find. There's no place to rest after they expended all the resources. You're deep in the dungeon. There's nothing to do. Everybody's beat to crap. What are you going to do? The, the, the design is either overly complicated or boring. Mazes are not great because they're so hard to navigate. Those aren't really fantastic. But also, it's also just a series of chambers with a hallway between them is also really boring. No real choice in the path. It's just a linear path. Few opportunities to role play. Hey, we have this whole part of the game, but we don't really talk to anybody. We're just fighting monsters. Too many hard battles. Again, too many beat, you know, too many low beats. And the monsters are always surprising the characters. Again, sort of all, all sort of beat based. So that's an example. I'm not going to go to this level of detail for all of these, but I want to just touch on them. Infiltration adventures are your heists. The main difference between an infiltration adventure and a dungeon crawl, in my mind, is that the characters know more about the location they're going into. In an infiltration game, usually the goal is more focused and refined. We're going there to steal something. We're going in there to rescue someone who's been kidnapped. We're going in there to kill a particular boss. We're going in there to steal secret plans about their attack. You have a very focused thing that you're trying to accomplish in that goal. It's not go wander through a dungeon and see what treasure you can pick up. But also, you know more about the location. We have this map. We've seen the layout from somewhere else. We've talked to people who told us where the thing is. We know information about how this is going to go and you so and you the way that you prepare it when you're preparing this adventure is that you really think of the whole thing as a bigger situation when i was talking about situation-based design instead of designing each chamber independently you're looking at the whole place and saying who inhabits this place how does this place operate when the characters aren't there who's wandering about where is the item what's going on here so this whole idea of infiltration-based adventures focuses on you thinking about the situation then when you're running it it runs differently because maybe half of your session is going to be focused on planning how are we going to get in there what approach are we going to take are we going to sneak in through the sewers underneath are we going to just climb the wall and go right over are we going to fight our way straight through are we going to pretend to be serving staff and go into the party and try to steal it that way lots of different ideas about how it's going to go players are discussing this the gm is sitting and listening and facilitating the conversation to make sure it's headed in a way that seems reasonable and then you run it and see how it goes but that's different than how you run a dungeon crawl where it's like well we step down the staircase and we go in some pitfalls for infiltration adventures. Players are spending too long on planning. Plans don't go, they go out the window right away. Characters are aggroing the entire place and everything attacks. A single bad check makes the whole thing not work. There's too many complications, so why did you bother to plan in the first place? And the changing situation makes it too hard for you to adjudicate. So those are example. Mission, mission style adventures are basically the characters have to accomplish a number of different things in a number of different places. Maybe this takes place in a dungeon. A lot of time it's overland, like you might be in a city and you have to do specific specific things in different places in the city. 
what each of those, this is more of a scene based adventure where you have different scenes that are chained together. You might not know which scene the characters are going to go to at any given time. And they might have different goals depending on where they go. This could be everything from investigation, like we need to go pick up clues, but it could also be things like in a war where you have different missions that the characters are meant to accomplish when you're, there's this bigger backdrop of a great big battle going on. But the, the common part of this is that it's built upon scenes that the, that the characters navigate, maybe in order, or maybe it's a network of scenes that the, the characters path, pass through. So we focus on those scenes. We run them as individual, as individual pieces, and we have different pitfalls, like the outcome of the missions either don't matter or they're not really clearly understood. It's not understood how one mission leads to another mission, you know, all, all those kinds of things that kind of break away from the immersion. A big one is that there's no actual action in a mission, that you go there, you hear a bunch of stuff, you learn stuff, but you don't do anything. There's no choice to be made. There's no difference in the outcomes that are going to occur there. So that's a big pitfall for, for missions. Investigation is your mystery style adventure. You've got something you're trying to learn and you want to go learn that the difference in preparation is a heavy heavy focus on secrets and clues what are all of the different clues that could exist that the characters could pick up as they're conducting their investigation you still worry about locations because they have to go to places you spend a lot of time on npcs because they're probably going to in, in they're going to talk to a lot of npcs but really you're focused on what are they going to learn the real trick is what do you do if the characters learn the answer right away and how do you make sure that you're giving them enough information that they're moving the story forward and they're learning things without so much that they've discovered everything before the game is up? What happens if they've picked up everything? Now what do you do with the game? That's probably the biggest one. Then the other one is you're dangling the discovery, which is you don't want to give enough information, which means they're not learning anything. They're not learning anything that gets really boring. Investigations can be pretty hard to run, but a real trick is lots of secrets and clues. Make sure no one secret leads to the end. Make sure they probably can't find out the thing without picking up a number of them. And then you choose where those secrets and clues go so that whatever path of investigation they take, they're still going to be able to pick up enough stuff to learn whatever they need to learn for the investigation. Travel is overland travel. Like a dungeon crawl, we have a structure to this. We give different roles to the characters. Who's going to be your pathfinder? Who's going to be your scout? Who's going to be your quartermaster? Who's tracking everything? You run it differently. A key to travel, travel can be really hard to run because it can be very boring. What are the different locations the characters are going to travel to? Where do they start? How do they get there? What's the weather like? Are there any random encounters? Is there a whole different path of web that they could take? This gets into your point crawls and hex crawl styles. What are the ways that you're going to navigate this particular situation? So lots of different questions here. And, and there's lots of pitfalls too. It could be tedious and boring. There's either too many encounters or not enough encounters. They're time wasting. You're just wasting time going from one place to another. They don't give any meaningful choices. So you're just, you're really just going through a path. It's actually really hard to run good travel scenes, but they definitely run differently. Intrigue is like political adventures. This is one where instead of learning things like an investigation, you're manipulating things. You're changing things around. You're setting factions against each other. You're building alliances and you're causing strife. You're doing all this stuff. There are particular role-playing games where this works well. A real hard part with this is usually you have one or two players who are really into it and everyone else is bored and would rather attack something. So it can be really tricky to run intrigue. Heavy, heavy focus on NPCs. What are the motivation of those NPCs? What do they want? What quests are they undertaking? What 
what have they already done to accomplish them? You, each of your NPCs has to be really rich and really driven and moving around on this big chessboard or this big pool table so that the characters can, can interact. You have to think differently about it. When you're running the adventures, obviously it's going to be a lot of characters talking to NPCs. But one big thing is if you have players who are combat focused, they're going to be bored. So you got to watch out. How, what kind of combat encounters can you throw in here where assassins are attacking you because of the manipulations you're, you're doing? Intrigue adventures are not quite as common. Defense adventures are also not quite as common where you're defending a location this is one of my favorite types of adventures the dun the 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 seven samurai style adventure some villagers have asked the heroes to come and defend their village from an overwhelming force it's really really great really easy to do lots of options about how the players decide what they want to do lots of cool things for them to manipulate lots of interesting secrets about like are the villagers hiding a secret lots of different ways you can handle it like we're going to go attack the we're going to go attack the bandits instead of deal with them and you can change these variables out who the villagers are who the bandits are where the village is located or what's going on there you can change these in all kinds of different ways to make the in the scenario completely unique but it runs very differently and you prepare it very differently in this one, you pay a special attention to what's the location that's going to be defended. How can we make sure there are lots of options for how to defend it? Who are the villagers? Who are the bandits? What are some of the secrets that the characters could discover? And then, like a heist, about half of the game is going to be preparation. What are the players going to do? What are the characters going to do to prepare for the oncoming attack? So lots of different things there. Some pitfalls. Players don't know how to prep or the location really isn't defendable. That's a bad one. Like, oh, it's a village in the middle of a big open area and there's no walls and there's no way to kind of choke. There's no choke points. That would be really bad. So you want to make sure when you're designing a location, if you're grabbing a map, make sure there's a way that they could set up choke points. Give them, give them options for, to actually defend a place. There's already walls. Maybe the walls need to be reinforced or something like that. The locals are really ineffective the characters don't know how to train them uh, the attack force is too overwhelming and there's nothing you can really do or the battle gets too complicated and you lose track of what's going on so those are these examples of seven different adventure types you know dungeon crawls infiltration investigations missions travel defense and intrigue and how they differ in how we prepare them and how we run them again i'm just starting to get my heads around these ideas i wrote up a draft article to get my heads around it i'll probably publish it later once i get more feedback if you have thoughts about this if you have ideas about why these work or why these don't work which are your favorite styles what styles of adventures do you prepare that where you prepare them differently than what i've talked about and you feel like they are a very common style i definitely want to hear more so feel free to send me an email leave me a comment join the patreon discord and talk to other patrons and myself about it lots of different ways but yeah i think it's a valuable topic and i think it's valuable because specifically it helps us understand how to prepare our adventures and how to run them if we know more about the adventure type that we're going to run Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we have a questions and answers thread where any patron of Sly Flourish can ask any role-playing game-specific question. I answer every question every Friday morning. Some of those questions I bring here to the show so that we can dive into the topic a little bit deeper. Sometimes they become their own catalyst for a uh, article on Sly Flourish or a separate video. So today, Ben H. says, my party was headed for a fight against a large pirate crew that was ravaging the Sword Coast and sent letters to cities they've helped during the adventure to send ships to help with the fight. I'm a bit unsure how to deal with it mechanically and don't want to deflate the fight by having random ships come. How do you logistically and narratively deal with, uh, with parties trying to set up a deus ex mechanis for themselves? So... I've, I had something very similar to this in my Spelljammer game where the characters had negotiated with a bunch of different 
factions in the worlds of in, in the in the, the wilds of the Spelljammer universe to help them fight the main evil bad guys in that adventure. And it worked out really well for me to focus on describing the larger battle purely in the narrative with flavor based on choices that the characters had made. For example, the characters learned that this is one of my favorite situations I think I've ever run. They rescued a gif from a moon that was overtaken with Tarasks. So the, there were just dozens of Tarasks on this moon and a guy ran off. And then later he said, I have, I have something I need to admit to you. And they said, well, what? He goes, I left a portable hole back on that planet of, on, on that moon full of Tarasks. And they said, okay. And he goes, but it's not exactly a portable hole. You see, I have another portable hole in my hat. And he pointed at his hat and he goes, and that one is connected. So anything that goes through the portable hole moon will come out of my hat. And they're like looking at each other. And he's like, should I, should I take it off? And they're like, no, don't take your hat off. Don't take it off. Leave it on your head. And he's like, okay. And they said, we want you to go on one of these ships and we want you to go after the enemy capital ship. And when you get up to the enemy capital ship, take your hat and throw it at the capital ship. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. And then they went off. And meanwhile, the characters, then they, they did that kind of manipulation with a whole bunch of other stuff. And then they went to do their specific mission. They had one job they were going to do, which was go rescue somebody from a prison, a prisoner ship. So they went to the prisoner ship. They rescued the prisoner. They're getting in big battles there. They end up taking over the prison ship and they look out and they see the capital ship ripped in half. And they're like, what just happened? And then they see a Tarrasque who's breaststroking through deep space, chasing other ships, both good guy ships and bad guy ships. And they go, What's that? And there's like, there's four of them, four Tarasks that are just breaststroking through space, destroying ships, sometimes good guy ships, some mostly bad guy ships. And they were like, wow, that worked out really well. Like, like asking the dude to take his Tarask hat and throw it off at the capital ship, destroyed the capital ship, which worked and also destroyed a bunch of other ships. But now there's a bunch of like orbital Tarasks surrounding this system. So we're going to have to get out of here, but it was really cool. So yeah, so that is a way where you can basically handle the narrative off screen and instead focus the characters on the missions that they're going to do. I apparently already answered this question last week, but the hat story was too much fun to not include this week, so I'm including it too. James says, enjoying a Shadow Dark session preps. At this point, would you be comfortable running a one-shot Castle Ravenloft Halloween game using Shadow Dark? How would you approach it differently than a 5e game? Yes, I feel comfortable. In fact, I am running my Shadow Dark, my, my yearly Ravenloft game. I'm running it next Saturday, and we are going to be running it using Shadow Dark rules. Uh, I will show you my uh, one-page handout uh, that I offered up to my players on how this is going to work. Uh, I'm calling it Shadows of Ravenloft for reasons. I included a little bit of flavor text that's directly off the book of I6 Ravenloft. By the way, I'm using the original module I6 Ravenloft. I am not using Curse of Strahd because I thought it'd be fun to use the 1983 version of the adventure, which is now 40 years old. I'm going to use a 40-year-old adventure. It's the 40th 40th anniversary of the original I6 Ravenloft, so I'm going to run that. And the way I'm, I'm we're using Shadow Dark rules, I generated 10 fifth level pre-gen shadow dark characters so they're a little bit beefier in their level we'll see we'll see what that's like 
Heroes of Ravenloft, again, I always focus on the idea that the characters are joined together to protect the Burgermeister's daughter, Irina, from her fate as Strahd's new thrall. But most of all, they fight alongside their companions to end Strahd's hold on the Twisted Land once and for all. So all of you are working together to stop Strahd. If you don't want to stop Strahd, you went somewhere else. So what are the things with Ravenloft in the Shadow Dark RPG? My players, one of my players, two of my players, two of my players have played Shadow Dark. One of them has played a fair bit of Shadow Dark. They're in my other campaign. And, but I still need to describe to many of the other players. Three or four of the players are, have never played Shadow Dark before. So some of the key things that I have found running Shadow Dark that I want to make clear to other sort of fifth edition people is the core abilities die rolls of Shadow Dark are the same as 5e. You still roll a d20, add a modifier, and match a dc. Shadow Dark embraces randomness. Dice rolls carry a lot of weight. You don't add modifiers to damage rolls. Ability scores are generated 3d6 down the line and thus are much flatter than your standard 5e, 5e ability scores. Characters have far fewer hit points than 5e, but so do monsters. Damage is a flat die roll in monsters, which means damage is lower but swingier. There's no spell slots or cantrips. Instead, casting spells requires a spellcasting ability modifier. On a failure, you lose the spell. Most of the time, if you succeed on the check, the spell succeeds. So there's usually not saving throws. That spell check usually tells you if the spell worked, period. You, do, you don't have to stack a couple of saving throws. Torches matter. Equipment slots matter. Rations matter. Shadow Dark has a much greater emphasis on the logistics of dungeon delving beware the dark torches burn and burn in real time one uh for one hour when they go out the horrors lurking in the dark fall upon you you're always in turn order we go through turns and rounds regardless of what the characters are doing spend too much time dorking around and wandering monsters will fall upon you those feel like the key things that i wanted to get across for what makes shadow dark different particularly when we're running it for this for this ravenloft game by the way if you want a copy of this one pager patrons of sly flourish get access to it i've been i've been posting it in the discord server so patrons of sly flourish can get it in the discord server we had talked about pre-generated characters i generated 10 characters for five people because people are probably going to die when they die i can drop in a new character right away they can find somebody else in the castle and that way the player can keep playing i sent out the quick start guide with a link so that they can see what shadow dark looks like the quick start guide is free you can get it on the drive through rpg website and that way there's enough material to go ah that's how this works i of course have my same sections for content line content what are the kinds of things that are going to be in this adventure what are the things that are going to be veiled off screen and what are the things that we are not going to have nobody is going to have in this and then of course pause for a minute anytime anybody can say pause for a minute why are we doing this or what direction we want to go or anything like that pausing for a minute or i don't i really don't like the content that we are including in this one particular spot so you have something like that so yes the answer is yes do i know how it'll work no i don't ask me in a week next sunday i might know how it goes in fact a topic for next sunday might be how did my shadow dark ravenloft game go would actually be a pretty cool subject Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while I talked about all things role-playing games. I hope you found this show useful. If you like this show and you want more stuff like this, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator PDF sent directly to your inbox, and each week you will get an RPG-related email newsletter. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, a... The City of Arches source book, a bunch of tools and accessories for running your games, lots of stuff that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish, and you help support this show. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Workbook, or the Lazy DM's Companion, on the Sly Flourish bookstore. All the links for those are in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play an RPG.